we are supported by Mammoth Fuel. Mammoth Fuel Bars were created with people like you in mind using only natural ingredients and zero artificial junk. We took no shortcuts in developing this highly functional and portable fuel bar. What are the benefits you may ask? Portable on-the-go fuel, post-workout recovery, boost cognitive function, aids in weight loss, anti-inflammatory, and low sugar. With 13 grams of protein and only 4 net carbs, Mammoth Fuel is the perfect meal, snack, and energy bar where you'd like to go. Try Mammoth Fuel at mammothfuel.com. Listening to the recordings over and over. I'm like, I'm editing. I swear. I'm not just listening to myself. <laughs> All right. We're live. We're recording. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by Guinness. <laughs> and for Quentin, it's brought to you by a Bloody Mary. Yeah. She's All a right. wonderful lady. She's a lady. Welcome to the new normal where we are talking current events, finances, philosophy, preparedness, and more. My name is Sal, and with me, as always, is Quentin or Q, but not that Q. Say hi to everybody. Not that Q. What's <laughs> up, guys? As we mentioned, uh, today's episode is going to be um, liquid sponsorship by Guinness. We're actually feeding this to, to the goats. We can get into why we're doing that here in a little bit. Today's episode is going to be about um, what everybody's probably talking about right now. And actually, just before the show started, I had a friend uh, comment on one of my posts uh, that at her local Costco, someone text her. So this is, I guess, fourth-hand information. Someone at their local Costco um, was running up the meat. So carts full of meat. And there's no limits on meat at their Costco right now. So in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, great. Here we go. Now, now we're not going to have enough toilet paper and people are going to have a bunch of meat sweats. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> it's going to be some smells. Some smells are going to happen. So that's what we're talking about today, guys. The looming, pending, potential food shortages that are happening here in America. There are tons of stories. We've got about four headlines that we're going to share and walk through today. And I know, Quentin, you wanted to jump into a little bit of history uh, just before we, uh, we dive into those topics. So let's, let's jump into it. What do you want to talk about? So uh, kind of a few things. This, this situation is obviously very different from the Depression, what occurred during the Depression. Um, but the way it's playing out economically is probably pretty similar, actually. And by about 1933, you had two things running. You had the Agricultural Adjustment Act and the Drought Relief Service. And they caused a bit of a disaster agriculturally. Now, we don't have those things happening, but we're allowing very similar circumstances to occur. Um, because, you know... If, First off, uh, back in the 1930s, uh, restaurants were just not a thing. There, there was not restaurants. Maybe you had a local diner or something like that, but people did not go out to eat. It was, that was very uncommon. And so the majority of the food that we grew or produced here ended up on your table, whereas a large portion of the food, if not the majority of food produced in this country, ends up on a restaurant's table. And that's usually fine because Americans like to go out to eat. Um, 
not probably the best thing in the world to have such a large service economy, but it is what it is. And we're seeing the producers of restaurant food destroy their food. Now, why that's important is because a lot of the food the average American consumes actually comes from places like Mexico. A lot of it, not all of it. And the majority of food that goes to the restaurant industry actually comes from the United States. So what we're seeing is we're seeing large swaths of our agricultural production actually just being destroyed because consumption is down in restaurants. And that's a huge problem because we're going to have food shortages soon and we're having problems getting food from other countries because of the import-export crisis. Now, why is this important? Well, because it's eerily similar to what happened during 19, the 1933 Agricultural Adjustment Act, where basically as people were hungry, millions of livestock in the form of chickens, cows, pigs mainly, um, were slaughtered. And at a time where we really couldn't afford to have it happen, the government did it anyways to reduce scarcity. And it, it, it caused a much worse system uh, to evolve after that. And I'm not going to really go into what occurred after that, but basically food prices went through the roof. So what you had is you had this deflationary episode that occurred in the commodities market and in the food market and food was super abundant and very affordable. Then all of a sudden it was completely scarce and unaffordable because it wasn't, the government got involved and it wasn't timed correctly. Well, right now what you're seeing is the government isn't getting involved and they're allowing producers to slaughter and to dump tons and tons of food in a time we really should not be doing that. This is also after the Obama administration at the end of that administration got rid of most of our strategic grain reserves and a lot of our uh, food commodities that are kept for times of national emergency and natural disaster. We don't, I, don't, I don't know if those things were ever replenished. I just remembered they were gotten rid of, and it didn't seem like they were being replenished, and this was a couple of years ago. Given that this administration has had its fair share of crises, that was a weird way to say that, wasn't it? Uh, crises. Um, crisis I. I don't think crisis I, yeah, it's like plural crisis. I don't, I don't know. Uh, but... Uh, Given that the fact that they've had these issues, I'm not sure that anybody has really focused so much on replenishing those stores. As a matter of fact, I think if it was researched and I did not do that, I bet you would find they hadn't been. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm totally wrong. I'm not trying to make some sort of grim prediction or anything like that. I hope I'm wrong about that. Um, but we relied on those things in the past for situations like this, and we don't have them. And our food processes are very complicated. What I think you're probably going to see in the future, and I hope I'm wrong about this too, and we may already be seeing it, is that animals are not just being slaughtered because there's no consumption, but they're being slaughtered because they're infected with COVID. And right. they don't want you to become infected with COVID. We know it's zoonotic. And we talked about this on the last show, but that's very possible that these animals are already infected and the outbreaks in those facilities that are occurring right now are actually not coming from the workers, but they're coming from the animals. So that's, that's potentially disastrous. I did some math, and there's 751,000 farmers, I believe, uh, from my research. Yeah, 751,000 farmers as of the 2010 census, and that number has gone down. 
There's been many suicides, many bad and dirty deals um, in agriculture in this country. That in, in the suicides right now in farmers are as bad or worse than the 1980s farm crisis. And it, for anybody who doesn't know what those that is, um, I, I highly suggest you go look that up. So 751,000 farmers are apparently, according to the Farm Bureau, capable of feeding 166 Americans apiece. Okay. So that comes out to 124,666,000 Americans. Well, I don't know about your math, but my math tells me that that's about a third of Americans because we have to account for a huge illegal population, numbers of which we don't know. Every 10 years, we're told it's 11 million. For 30 years, it's been 11 million. I would probably ponder to guess that uh, it's a no, lot it's more than that. 20 to 30 at this point. Uh, probably even higher than that. I think it was uh, Ann Coulter said it could be as high as 50 years. Right. Um, so... I think she's probably correct. No matter how you feel about that situation, uh, those people have to eat too. And those people are going to be competing with you to get food in the future because the system failed them and you. Um, this is a really complex system, and any hiccups in this on-demand food supply is, is problematic. And a person, we were talking about this earlier with a person on a Facebook uh, post that you made, you know, how do they contact the FDA, uh, USDA and how do, they, how do they correct some of the issues going on? How do we petition to stop this? I'm going to go down a little brief rabbit hole, but the bottom line is you probably can't. And, and this is something that has to change. This is, if you get anything out of this show, it's that we, we have to start making these changes ourselves. We have to demand action from our leaders. We have to be more vocal in our, our discontent. But at some point uh, in, in the 1980s, um, the, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that money was free speech, right? And we all have known for a while that corporations are people. They're considered corporate people. So these corporations have a louder voice than you because basically they're allowed to legally bribe our politicians into doing things that are potentially outside of our interest. And we talked about how that's problematic if foreigners did the same thing. Right. Well, I was just about to bring up the fact that, you know, Smithfield and, and a lot of these foreign entities are, are not only buying absolutely. up. And, and if you haven't already checked out episode three with Walden Fencer, we had a really great conversation about just the scary probability that the fact that there are foreign nationals who are buying up not only land, but what's underneath the land, which are the mineral rights and the water rights. Um, and, and in addition to that, um, one of the other comments in, in a separate thread about food shortages was the fact that some of these farmers and, and some of these processing plants are being ordered, not by Americans, not by their CEOs, but by China themselves, by the owners of these companies, they're being ordered to shut down. So not, yeah. not to cut you off, but just, you know, as a, almost like a caveat to that is the fact that so many people don't realize that these companies are not American made or are American owned. China yeah. has a vested interest. And they don't even have American employees at this point. They employ, right. employ millions of illegal aliens. Right. Imported uh, slavery. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're wage slaves. And, and it's, it's sometimes worse than that. Um, but, you know, these foreign companies and foreign countries have the ability, because money is free speech, to lobby your government to pass laws that aren't in your interest, you know, to shut down your food supply, to potentially 
export your food to a foreign country instead of allow you to eat it. You know, there's nothing that says they can't do that. Also, nothing preventing it because they're able, they have the power to lobby Congress. And you really don't. We can, we can set up PACs. Unfortunately, there was a landslide or a landmark Supreme Court case in which, you know, PACs were allowed to continue. And, you know, you, Americans can basically pool money to do the same thing that corporations did. But a lot of times corporations hijack those PACs and that becomes problematic in themselves. So, you know, that's something that has to change. You know, money isn't free speech, and I don't care what you think about it. Government doesn't think money is free speech either, even though they allow themselves to be bribed. And I'll tell you why the government doesn't think money is free speech. It's because if you wanted to, you could go take out an ad in a newspaper talking about how great a terrorist organization was if you wanted to. Go try to give them money. See what happens. You, the FBI will arrest you. you. You will not be able to give these organizations money, but you could take out a newspaper article for them. It would be weird, and I don't recommend it, and I definitely don't recommend you giving these people money, obviously, but the, the, it, right. that metaphor or, or allegory you know, is useful because the government themselves doesn't even believe that your money is free speech. So it's basically just a way that they pass the law to allow bribery. And until we fix that system, it doesn't really matter what the problems are with their agricultural industry because most farms are owned by conglomerates at this point. A lot of the workers are corporate. A lot of those corporations are owned by foreigners and none of it's in our interest. You know, we have a time when we have some of the highest farmer suicides, if not the highest in the country's history. And when we get farm bailouts recently, there has been some, it goes to ConAgra and Syngenta and Monsanto and these massive companies and these poor farmers who die deaths of despair are largely ignored. Right. So to, to, we have a bad system to talk about that. Um, we're doing a Facebook live as we're recording tonight's episode. So some of the comments are very helpful that are actually coming in uh, some folks talking among themselves, but um, we had one comment that said as of 12, 10, 19 suicides among farmers are one and a half times higher than the national average, according to the centers for disease control. Yes, they are. It's really, really high. It's up there with law enforcement which is basically the highest in the country. Well, and when you think about who, who becomes a farmer, right? So salt of the earth folks who do what? They either stay on the farm or join the military or do 11% work. of farmers are active duty military. Right. So now you, you exasperate the, the, the suicide by the fact that not only are they veterans, but now they're coming back to uh, a situation where they are more in debt than they've ever been in their life to try to satiate Monsanto's and, and, and these other corporations, these other large Two banks, many of which want their land to sell to Monsanto's and ConAgra's, you know. Right. They, they give them predatory loans on purpose. And then the people they have to buy seed from and have to buy chemicals from also want to see them bankrupt because they would like to add their land to the inventory of land they already hold. It's a very dirty system. And I'm not, you know... I'm, I don't want to come off as like anti, you know, agriculture. I'm anti big agri. My grandfather was a subsistence farmer. The only reason he lived was because he, you know, during the depression, they, they, they farmed and raised hens. And my, my mom's side, we were rice farmers we farmed rice until very, very recently. Actually, the farm is still running. It's, it belongs to my grandmother and it, it does very well. We're independent, and it's it's more and more rare as time goes on to see independent farmers not beholden to these crazy banks and this horrible corporate interest. 
Right. The the only independent farmers that you have now, truly independent, are your local farmers market style farmers, right? So here in, in Southeast yeah. Texas and, and Deep East Texas, we have local strawberry farmers and local blueberry farmers. And then we've got folks who are raising a small head of uh, a small herd of, of cattle. Um, so, I mean, that's that's the solution if, if we're going to, you know, jump ahead into the conversation. You know, obviously, we'll come back to what you were talking about. But yeah, just just before we finish, because this is really quick. Yeah, yeah. So my point to all of this is, is this is a very fragile and very interdependent and interconnected system. And the, gre- the gears have ground to a halt. All of the things that move the products to move the products, so fertilizer, feed, um, you name it, you know, just supplies. You just need basic supplies, uh, perishable supplies to, to, to grow and to raise animals and grains. Th- those things have stopped. And, and we're not getting items from other countries at this point. And if our farms can only feed about 124 million, really about 125 million Americans, that means we're very dependent on foreign countries, some of which may just not like us at all and may not want to send us food at this point, but they're dependent on our money. But now that everything's ground to a halt and the global economy and banking has failed, they might not actually need our money as much as you think they do. They might actually need their food they grow for us more than they need our money. And so that becomes very problematic. And we could be up against a wall for food shortages. So what we're going to talk about now is going to be how you can prepare for that, what you can do, what you can grow, how you can manage those things within your own home or property. Right. And just to, you know, talk about some of the the foreign, there's a contract, um, I don't know if it dates back as far as 2016, but I know it came up recently with all this food shortage discussion was the fact that we are now for the first time ever getting red meat from an Ebola nation, right? So from Namibia, oh God, we are getting meat for Americans. And this is, this is the part that I don't understand. And, and my wife and I were having this conversation earlier is the fact that if every cattle rancher, every red meat rancher were, giving back to the community in such a way that they could essentially sustain Americans for, you know, the, the duration. And right? your average rancher and farmer who is independent will be doing that. Exactly. That's bet that Smithfield and large producers will not be. Right. And they're shutting down. They're destroying they're, it right now. You're they're causing that, that. They're causing that backlog of ready to slaughter meat. And they're essentially euthanizing hogs and sterilizing, um, I think one of the articles that we're going to discuss, uh, you know, they're, they're essentially giving pigs abortions. Uh, and there's that is just, exactly what happened during the Agricultural Adjustment Act. I mean, to a T. It just it, it baffles my mind that we have we've gotten to such a point in in our outsourcing that we have outsourced our ability to consume red meat or just food in general. I mean, we get our fruits and vegetables from Mexico and from other places we now are getting our meat from an entirely different continent that has a, a, a plague of not only wars, but literal plagues. Um, and, and that's not to say that everything that comes over there, right? This isn't a Donald Trump statement where all uh, Mexicans are rapists, right? That's not to say that everything that comes from uh, Africa is, is tainted with Ebola. It's just the facts, right? And we have farmers that, that could be sustaining American lives. We don't import- mad yeah we don't import mad cow cows you know right. 
We don't import cows with a mad cow. That might kill you 50 years from now. We don't really know. But we know that you, if you get Ebola tomorrow, there's a 50% chance you'll die. So not, not a great plan. Yeah, no, not at all. And it, it just shows the desperation. And uh, go ahead. Were you saying something? No, I was just going to get into one of the headlines. So this is from Forbes.com. Farmers face the worst case scenario, depopulating chickens, euthanizing pigs, and dumping milk. So that's pretty much everything that we've covered. I'm going to read a couple things and get your take on it. Farmers and ranchers are beginning to face the worst case scenario with meat processing plants closing and institutional milk buyers shut down. Some farmers have no choice but to put the food that they produce to waste. Dairy farmers are trying to decide between dumping their milk and selling their dairy cows for beef. Contract chicken growers on the eastern shore have been asked to, quote, depopulate nearly 2 million chickens. And this is actually something that Joe Rogan was talking about on his podcast with uh, Tim Poole. Um, the fact that they're already starting to depopulate a lot of the cattle, a lot of the chicken. And you get messages like the one that I alluded to earlier, where people are already making a run on meat at uh, Costco and, and other places. And the, the infuriating part about that is the fact that these stores, just like the whole toilet paper situation, right? These, the, the management that is in place right now is so blind and they can't see the fact that this is about to happen and we're not putting any sort of limits on it. We're going to wait until it becomes a crisis, until we have absolutely no meat on the shelves before we say, oh, well, maybe we should only limit it to one or two items per person. Like, who is running these things? And, and, and I don't care if it's, uh, you know, up to some sort of corporate chain of command. There comes a point of local accountability where we have to sit back and say, hold on, this is about to hit the fan. I'll take it up the chain and I'll, I'll ask for forgiveness rather than permission. We need to put a limit on what's happening because every article that I saw today and, and by design or by algorithm, however you, however you want to classify it, everything that I saw people sharing today on social media, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook were the fact that we are in the process of, or in the midst of a food shortage. And the only positive headline, which we'll get into here in just a second is the fact that Trump may be potentially ordering slaughterhouses and meatpacking plants to stay open. Yeah. So I, I had a thought the other day where I was thinking about pipelines and how our country, you know, to, to, to build the rail and to build lines and to build most of our public utilities, the government just employed the people to do it. And they were national projects, right? Um, where they heavily subsidized it. And I thought about why it wasn't that they did that with the massive pipeline projects that we've had recently. And I thought, well, because Congress would never get anything done. It would be a huge fight, which brother-in-law had the pipeline run through the backyard, which, which, you know, company or union or whomever did the work. It would be just a disaster. It would, it would be more gerrymandered and screwed up than a political district. And it, it struck me that the government passed that off to corporations to do that because there's an executive and they can make a single decision and, you know, they can decide whose palms they grease and whose brother-in-law's backyard it goes through and 
you know, who's going to do the work and whatever can be very uh, cost effective and very easy to get done. So I say all that to say that perhaps it's not an accident that all of this meat is being destroyed, you know, and perhaps the government, if they did that, it would be, you can imagine, right? If the government tried to do a new agricultural adjustment act and we had evidence that they were, the USDA was out shooting pigs in the head and dumping them in pits and stuff like they did last time. It would be a disaster. They couldn't even get away with it. But now they can allow it to occur, right? Not just basically they don't stop it. They know that ultimately these corporations are going to do with what's in their best interest for profit. They're going to take care of the bottom line first. And that so happens to be getting rid of these animals. So the interest probably of the U.S. government and these corporations are actually in line at this point. It may not seem like it. You, you might not wish to think of the government like this or capable of doing something like that, but they are, and they definitely could. And consumption is down, right? We do have deflation because there is just, we are swimming in food at the moment, and it's going to change very, very quickly. And it's probably already started to change. In the next couple of weeks, it's going to be completely different. But right now, we are drowning in food just like we're drowning in gasoline because we aren't consuming enough. So even with this bill, you know, order, I'm sorry, uh, that's being signed, it, it doesn't mean a whole lot because it, these people could be ordered to stay in office or not in office, in, in production working, right? But in fact, they could still just be euthanizing chickens that come in there, right. just grinding them up and you know, shipping them off to dog food plants or something like that, or just burying them. They don't necessarily have to be in there working to produce food. And as a matter of fact, if they're not ordered to do so, explicitly ordered to produce food and start giving it to food banks, and if the government, you know, if they don't step in and say, we're buying it and we're going to distribute it, then there's no guarantee this ever makes it to our table. At some point, the government could have stepped in. We've seen it do this in the past. They could have stepped in, purchased food, excess food, and they could be distributing it to, you know, homeless shelters, food banks, et cetera. But they're not. They're not doing that. They're, they're you know, because ultimately they want you to consume, right? It's, it's in their interest to keep the economy going to some degree, whatever degree they can. So they want you to consume. Free food is not necessarily within the interest of the government either until it becomes too late, you know? Once you are demanding food and you're becoming very hostile about it, then it becomes the government's interest to make sure you're fed. Until then, it's the government's interest to make sure the economy is running. Unfortunately, if that's not timed perfectly, people could starve to death. They did during the Depression. You know, there's, no, there's no reason they couldn't now. If you look back then, you know, we had, I think it was somewhere between 60 and 70% of the the American population were in agriculture or lived on a farm. Now it's 751,000 people, okay? It's less than 1% of the population has access to massive food stocks. Now, you could live rurally and you could live around a farm, but unless you have the ability to actually slaughter large animals or to raise some on your property, you can actually get feed at this point, which might be pretty difficult for you and begin you're going to have some problems because it's not just, it's not so easy just to slaughter a cow. They're quite heavy. And if not you want to do it by yourself, 
you're going to have to lift it with a tractor or something like that. Or you're going to have to ground skin it and bleed it on the ground. And it's going to be nasty. It's going to be difficult. This isn't that easy. And so we're, we're facing, we're up against the situation that if it, I think it might've been too late for the government to step in and do something. I hope I'm wrong. I really do. I hope I'm wrong, but they should have stepped in. And instead of allowing all of the restaurant food to be, to be burned or, or destroyed or rot in the field, they should have probably sent those to the food banks instead of relying from imports on Mexico to go to the food banks. Now the food banks are running out of food and the military's in some places distributing this food. You know, there's a, it's a limited amount of humanitarian rations the Department of Defense actually has to dole out. You know, so what are they going to do about it? I, I don't know. More importantly, what are you going to do about it? And why don't you go ahead and now that I've like thoroughly depressed everyone and scared them, why don't you talk? <laughs> no, I mean, there's a couple more headlines just to, you know, kind of give and, and paint the picture. I don't, okay. I don't know that um, it's necessarily Debbie Downer moment, but at the same time, people should be aware. People should be uh, taking scary, a, scary. Take, take a little bit more stock in the, the preparedness mindset, right? Not necessarily being bunker uh, apocalypse prepper, right? But having... Uh, that's too late. There. If you're not already that person, it's too late. You know, right. like you either have your bunker and you're in your little redoubt and with all of your food or you're like the rest of us, you know, and you're going to have to make it above ground and with whatever it is that you have on hand. So here's a quote from the Financial Post, and it's from Brent Stewart, who's the president of Denver-based consulting firm Global Agritrends. It's absolutely unprecedented. It's a lose-lose situation where we have producers at risk of losing everything and consumers at risk of paying higher prices. Restaurants in a week could be out of fresh ground beef. New U.S. shutdowns are hitting at a dizzying rate. Smithfield Foods the world's number one pork producer said Friday, so this is uh, as of last Friday, it was closing another operation, this one in Illinois. That news hit less than an hour after Hormel Food Group said it was idling two of its Jenny O turkey plants in Minnesota. JBS said Sunday it would shutter a beef production facility in Wisconsin. So this is, this is very real, right? So the fact that you have people who are reading these headlines coinciding with management at some of these uh, big box stores and, and, and uh, the Walmarts and the Costco's out there that are not limiting it right now by next week because of these headlines and, and maybe even because of this podcast, right? Or, or podcasts like it. Joe Rogan was talking about this today uh, on his podcast. There is going to be not a potential at this point, but there is going to be some sort of food shortage in your local Walmart, your local Brookshire's, your local Costco, whatever it is that you your favorite store is. And, and we're already seeing it now, right? So like butter, it's so hard to find butter at, at our local sh uh, Walmart. We couldn't even find baking soda of all things. I, do, I don't understand why baking soda was was scarce. But today I saw, again, the meat aisle, uh, specifically red meat and pork, a little bit of chicken, but mostly the red meats uh, and pork was pretty much empty. And this was around, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon. And this is before the headlines really started rolling out. And it makes you wonder, again, by design or by just algorithm, you know, this, this trend of pushing this narrative out there 
that we're about to have a food shortage. And so it's one of those chicken or the egg situations, right? Did this food shortage cause this? Or did the fact that we talked about a food shortage cause this? And you you bring up a point that, you know, government could be intervening at some point. But then you have, you know, other headlines from, from Reuters that came out uh, yesterday, piglets aborted, chickens gassed, and pandemic, as pandemic sla- slams the meat sector. So with the pandemic hobbling the meatpacking industry, Iowa farmer Al Van Beek had nowhere to ship full-grown pigs that make up uh, 7,500 piglets he expected from his breeding operation, right? So he's already euthanizing and, and uh, aborting these piglets um, because there's just nowhere to go. All these plants are shutting down. And this is where we need to start talking about what you could be doing, right? So someone living in an apartment, you know, 800 square foot apartment or, or however big it might be, obviously can't raise uh, a, a thousand pound steer or, or even a goat or, or a lamb. Um, but there are certainly things that you could be doing to start getting prepared. And, and we saw this as of like three or four weeks ago, everybody was making a run for seeds, right? So Tractor Supply and, and Walmart, all their gardening departments were bare yet again. And we're probably going to start seeing it again, where I think in Minnesota, they had uh, sections of the garden department completely roped off and you were not allowed to enter there. You couldn't buy seeds um, and, and they weren't allowing you to do that. You know, hopefully they're, they're at least going to limit it uh, so that people can get what they want. But at this point in the growing season, if you're, if you're already, you know, just thinking about growing something and you haven't already planted something, Good luck, but at the same time, try to get your hands on some started uh, tomatoes and, and some started vegetables of some sort. Um, right now, we're currently looking at our garden, which we've had in place for the last uh, two and a half, three years when we first moved out to our property. One of our main goals was to have a self-sustaining garden, right? So the, the goal for us moving out of the big city and onto a quote-unquote homestead was so that we could visit the store as few times as possible. And when we cleared out a piece of our property, I, I said, we're going to go big, right? Go big or go home. And so we sectioned off about, uh, the exact measurements are lost on me, but I think it's somewhere in the range of 20 by 60 um, in terms of how big our garden is. Now, not all of it obviously is packed and it doesn't have uh, everything packed in there and crammed in there, but we're currently growing potatoes, green beans, zucchini, yellow squash, corn, jalapenos, cucumbers, eggplants, onions, garlic, right? So all the staples that you would normally need for preparing your food. And we still have a lot think, a lot more stuff to plant in there, like sp- spaghetti squash, pumpkins, tomatillos, butternut squash, uh, bell peppers. There's always something you can plant in Texas. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and that's the beauty of our climate. And if you're listening to us from some of these other locations, uh, I, I think we have one listener in South Africa. So hello to you. <laughs> hey. Um, you know, having an herb garden, right? So we have an herb bed off to the side of our main garden where we have um, asparagus for the first time. You know, we we've, haven't grown asparagus um, since we moved out here. And asparagus is just one of my favorite things that I love having. Um, so I'm, I'm really happy at the fact that we were able to get those in the ground. Now you have to start learning about these things too, right? You can't just go buy seeds and, and plant them in the ground and say, work your magic. 
right? You, you should be taking some proactive approaches to, to learning the seasons, right? Get your hands on a, on a farmer's almanac and, and learn about what time in your region you should be planting certain things, right? And I think that's what's lost on a lot of people is that, well, I, I planted it and it didn't grow. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and they're just expecting this magic seed this Jack and the Beanstalk seed to just grow and flourish. So sometimes and, you can get lucky. I mean, with that. I gotta, I gotta say this. So I'm, I'm out of my in-laws place. <clears throat> we did very little prep work. Um, me and my wife know uh, farming and gardening cause we did it. And I don't know the soil pH and it, it, to let you know, if you don't know anything about this, that's kind of a big no, no, that's not good. You should know some stuff about your soil and your soil pH. So I if you don't know, you can actually have a soil test for free by your local ag extension. You can just take, you, a you can send it off and they'll give you all of that. You can, I just, they're not open, right? <laughs> like I, I can't get it done. So I licked, I licked the soil and because you can kind of tell a lot, you know, acidity or alkalinity from that. As, as silly as it sounds, I did like a, a uh, vinegar test on it. Um, and I kind of gauged where it was and I threw some stuff in the ground, but I know what I'm doing. Okay. I'm not a, I'm not a complete, you know, new to this type guy. So we've got potatoes growing and we, we have um, sweet potatoes and various other things that are actually really successful uh, right now. So you can throw stuff in the ground and get really lucky, but, but you really kind of already have to know what you're doing to get lucky like that. I wouldn't recommend you, the average listener has never gardened before, try to go do that. Um, and, and honestly, if you're looking at doing this from a survival, I mean, cause look, you really might need this to maybe not, I don't know. It could get, it could get bad enough to where you need to survive off what you grow. It really could. But, but honestly, you just might have poor nutrition you know, after this thing is done, if you don't do something like this to give you, give you an example of that. Millions of recruits were turned away during world war II because they grew up during the depression and they had stunted growth. They were underweight or they had rickets so bad that they had uh, bowed their legs and their hips and caused severe scoliosis. So, and that's why there was an enrichment program that USDA made sure that all of our stuff was enriched and very nutritious after that. Everything that was grown had to be enriched because it was a detriment to our fighting force. You could literally see something like that again from this, you know, the kids growing up in this time. So if you have kids at home, it would be in your interest to make sure there was at least something, some fresh produce and something that you could grow. Potatoes are, you know, great source of oh, for sure. minerals and uh, they're going to keep you from getting well, I don't know. I don't want to say they're going to keep you from getting rickets. Don't quote me on that, but they're going to, they're going to help. Okay. Um, you were talking to me a, a little bit earlier before we started the show. You know, a lot of people are obviously thinking about vegetables and, and good produce, but what are some of the vegetables? You need to grow produce? calories. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going. What, what are some of the things that you're growing that have calories that are actually going to help sustain somebody? Yeah, we're growing potatoes. We're growing sweet potatoes. We're going to plant a field of corn. Um, on an acre, believe it or not, on an acre, you can produce 2,700 pounds of wheat, 2,700 pounds of wheat. You can produce 40,000 pounds of strawberries. You know, you need to do square foot gardening. You need to grow nutrients. Oh, for sure. You know, so I made the best, you know, we had it like, a, I don't know, like a 15 by 75 foot plus plot that we planted. 
And I made sure every square inch of that is packed with calories. And I mean, we're planting potato plants cl close and tight. And um, because if this goes, and this is a protracted kind of experience, it, it's not just about what I'm going to eat right now. I've got to have seed crop, you know, right. I've got to make sure I can turn slips. You know, a lot of people don't know, but you know, potatoes and nightshade and a sweet potatoes and morning glory. So the way you, you get your seeds from that, those are two different methods and it, and it can be, it can be problematic if you haven't grown enough to consume, let alone replant uh, will be that you eat, you know, in the future. That's that can become your biggest problem. And so, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I'm going to grow a tomato. I'm going to grow a cucumber. Cool. I like those things too. They have no calories. They're Rick delicious. Salad. Don't get me wrong. I love some, I love some salad and I, I love some pickles and some salsa and stuff like that. But uh, you are going to become skinny quick, especially if we have a meat shortage. The only thing that you really replace, you can't really replace meat. You really can't. From a nutritional standpoint, you really can't replace meat. But you can get by and kind of Ooh, survive. you're going to piss off some vegans. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> vegans, sorry, but like you're a really unhealthy crowd and I feel bad for you. Um, <laughs> you should, you should not, feel bad you're, too. You're, yeah. You, you probably do feel bad. You just don't want to admit <laughs> it. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you, you need meat, but, you know, beans, rice, some protein right there, some starch, some fiber. Um, but potatoes, you just can't really replace potatoes and if you can't get meat you're going to need carbs right you need to turn something to fat so corn you know things that are very sugary cucumbers and tomatoes are just not going to do it for you You shouldn't be that should not be your garden plan and for whatever reason the garden section is just rife with potatoes and cucumbers and like just useless vegetables and and it's very pickings for decent potatoes mm. i got lucky in the potato breeds that i got this year and they're really good for our climate even though they're really not from around here um yeah we got a couple variety of potato you're just not you, your selection of those things at the store is just not very good and uh yeah lentils you know, would be so great one to, to have in in that yeah, list beans as well. Yeah, like you're about to, it's about to be too late if you're in the south to most places in the south to plant asparagus beans. There's some there's some beans right now that you're you're kind of either you plant tomorrow or today or you're just probably not gonna have a very good harvest. But there's always a running cycle. You know, there'll be pole beans, there'll be something next uh, in the next couple of weeks. There's gonna be something else coming out that you can plant. But you need to focus on things that grow very densely and have very dense nutrition, or at least starch or carbs for sure and, and there's a plethora of information out there right so between youtube and documentaries there's so much information that you could have just a library of hours of information to help get you through at least the learning phase right let's just say best case scenario we don't have a food shortage this is all just blown out of proportion you know the media is fear-mongering us and and you know everything's good rainbows and unicorns everything's great we're all going to go out to eat next week and and everything's great uh at the very least you're at least educating yourself right and things that you've never educated yourself in before and the fact that we, we are so disconnected from our food, right? And, and I say this flippantly, but at the same time, there are kids out there that don't know where their eggs come from, right? So they'll go Are you kidding the, me? They come from Walmart. 
<laughs> exactly right so <laughs> why do why do we need farmers when we can just go to walmart and get our chicken like why do we need chicken farms we can just go we can what i don't understand right and the brown eggs those are organic yeah. right those are fully organic oh <laughs> <laughs> Not a specific breed or anything. They're just like really much better for you. I mean, there's such an ignorance in, in where food comes from. And, and I don't say this to be, you know, pretentious and, and a jerk about it. But at the same time, like, guys, brown milk is got chocolate in it. It doesn't come from brown cows. <laughs> and, and and it sounds silly to say that. But, I mean, the, the ignorance that, that is out there, unfortunately, uh, because we are just so disconnected, right? Get out Let, there. Let's be real. Brown milk has corn syrup in it. Well, that's true. Not mine, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We we raise goats. Uh, we raise Nubian and mini Nubian goats for specifically for for our, uh, the milk consumption. And um, I went and got some good quality uh, cocoa powder that we could make our own chocolate syrup. So, at one point, we had so much milk in the in the fridge that I was just like, these kids aren't drinking drinking it fast enough. And, and, you know, I don't want to get rid of it. And obviously we can freeze it and make soap and all these other good things. And I was like, I got the bright idea. I was like, you know, we haven't had chocolate milk in a long time. So I made this homemade uh, chocolate syrup. And I, I started adding it into one whole jar, one whole half gallon. Man, I'm telling you, that went quicker than I've ever seen milk go. Oh, I bet it, it did. Was hilarious. Oh, exactly. So now every time we have one jar of uh, a half gallon jar of chocolate milk and then all the rest of the milk uh, sits in the fridge. Uh, you know what we don't either give to, to the goats that are still feeding um, or, or any of our customers that come by and, and grab some milk. But I mean, these are the type of things that, you know, obviously, if you live in an 800 square foot apartment, you're not going to raise goats and you're not. Talk to your goats. local pothead, though. He might have an idea of how you can grow in there. Exactly. <laughs> Some hydroponics. Your local, like your 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 building stoner, ask him. You know, no, but seriously, uh, some full spectrum lights and some uh, like hydroponic irrigation or something actually could go a long way if you have a couple of windows. And I mean, you don't even really. I mean, like I said, if you have full spectrum lights, you don't even need windows. You can grow in your closet. I, I wouldn't recommend it. It'd be funky, but I mean, you you might want to consider doing that. Yeah, and we got one of these comments. Uh, that there are a few vegan athletes out there that are high performance. Vegan diets can be done right. Uh, but for most people, it's not right. So it's, it's just one of those things yeah. that if you don't go in full, those people are ahead, athletes, right. They've got that so time like, uh, and the resources. I want to say this, like, so I don't look like it, but I'm over 200 pounds. Right. Cause I have this like, what is it like a mesomorphic body type or something? There's like endomorph and eso ectomorph and mesomorph. Anyway, I'm like the middle and I, I can like just blow up. Like if I want to go work out or whatever, I'll be like 240 pounds in, in like six weeks and just, and just blow up. And I can eat garbage and do that. These people are athletes. Like they, they have a strange body type that makes them good at whatever and their genetics make them particularly good at whatever it is that they do. Right. And it's very expensive to be a high performance athlete on a vegan diet. And I agree you can do it, but man, why that's, I mean, cause not all vegan diets are like clean. Some of that stuff you're eating, like Oreos are vegan, man. Like that's right. not, not good. You know, not, not, not very, I would rather eat like, like an Omaha steak. I'd rather eat a whole <laughs> Omaha steak than like a handful of Oreos. Probably oh, you're my making me hungry. get it more. 
I know. I'm starving. Well, and the, the, uh, going back to the fact that there, there are so many resources available to us to, to learn these things, right? Like at this point, if you have not watched Forks Over Knives or Food Inc., I'm sorry to tell you, like you're you're so far behind the curve. Even you if you just watched, even if you just watched it for entertainment purposes, you know, a year ago or two years ago. But one of the documentaries that I wanted to kind of advocate and, and promote, um, absolutely no affiliation to it, is Back to Eden, and that's that's what got us really pumped and jazzed about gardening when we were living in in a big city. Is we didn't have a huge backyard. We didn't have a lot of soil, a lot of good soil. Obviously, it's sod. Um, so we did a raised bed garden, and we did the back-to-Eden method. So if you're not familiar with the back-to-Eden method, just to kind of give you a, a summary, the developer of this, and, and the name escapes me, he was walking, and he lives in Seattle, I think it is, or the Washington State area, and he was walking around, and he was talking to God, and he's asked, you know, God, you know, who's taking care of the forest? Who's taking care of these trees and, and these plants, you know, nobody's tilling this land, nobody's doing anything with it. How, how is it happening? And his answer was look down, right? And, and the answer was at his feet, which was covering. And that was the word that came to him. So the back to Eden method is essentially covering your crops. And, and that's not a relatively new method, right? So people have been doing that for centuries. But what he found was using wood chips was a great method of retaining the moisture inside the soil and because those wood chips are organic they will eventually break down and become such a rich source of soil for you and because it retains so much of that moisture you're using much less water so again if you're living in a rural uh, excuse me in, in a metropolitan area or a suburb area let's just say water restrictions happen you don't have to worry about that because the water situation is, is essentially handled in your garden, right? So the, the method behind it is you, you have about six to 12 inches worth of soil, mushroom compost, uh, a whole bunch of other things that obviously you can go to back to Edenfilm.com and watch the documentary. But the, the last layer is just piling on wood chips and you soak it down, you soak it down, you soak it down. Um, Paul Gauchi is, is the name, uh, I believe is, is how you pronounce his last name. Um, thank you, Trina, by the way, in our Facebook Live. Um, you soak it down until the first rain. So ideally, again, going back to the fact that you are learning about the cycles and learning about the weather and understanding patterns and, and how everything's coming about, you would start your, your bed probably one or two days before a good rain, right? And start planting everything, or maybe even a week before. And then once that first big rain comes, you just stop watering. And you let it do what it what it's naturally made to do. And I'm telling you, the very first time we did a, a back to Eden garden, we had the most abundant harvest. And, and again, we were just doing tomatoes and, and little things here, uh, watermelon, squash, things of that nature. But we had the most abundant garden in our raised bed, square foot garden, you know, kind of mixing and matching some of these different gardening techniques. But the back to Eden method has by far been the best technique that we've ever used. And even now in our large plot of land that we have uh, to the side of our house, we, we uh, have electric company that goes up and down our, our road and they'll trim back trees every once in a while, you know, usually once a year or twice a year. And about two years ago, they were on our road and I pulled them over and I said, Hey, 
what are you going to do with all the wood chips? And they said, well, we got to go dump it somewhere, obviously. And I asked them, well, can you just have your trucks dump everything here? And they said, okay, yeah, how many loads do you want? <laughs> and I told them, no, 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 you don't understand. Dump every load you can while you're over here uh, trimming back trees. And the, there was a huge smile on his face because he knew he didn't have to obviously drive out to wherever he, where it is he needed to dump those. So he's saving his time and saving money. And those guys dropped off, I can't even tell you, maybe five or six loads of wood chips. And we're talking like about the things. Exactly. It's the big wood chip haulers. And we're just now, right? So almost three years into this, we're just now getting to the last bits of it. And it's still a lot, right? So it's not like a couple bucket fools. Like it takes a tractor with a front end loader to move the amount of wood chips that we have. And all that does is continue to break down and create this nourishing beautiful and, and it's weird to talk about soil right so you're over here talking about licking soil i'm, I'm over here about putting it in my hands and just yeah f- fall the apart. smell man <laughs> yeah it's like like that 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 chocolate cake texture if you can get it like oh, that yeah. The smell. yeah right so i mean it's just falling apart it's so fluffy and airy and dark i mean black soil and the- so I, I got lucky with the garden we just kind of like i stuck things in the ground and it happened to do really well I'm on a bed of Stuttgart soil. So if you're in like sandy loam or rocky loam, you have some other sort of loam, like you can pretty much always guarantee that Stuttgart soil is going to have a certain type of composition and it's going to be very dense in, 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 in nutrition uh, and just its texture and its ability to retain water. But like if you're in some other type of soil, especially sandy loam or sandy soil, you need to, you need to get a soil test. You're going to have to do a ton of amendments. And the best way that you can do that is probably with the back to Eden method. Yeah, because all the wood chip does, especially if you're not going to use it right away, let it sit there. Let it sit there for the next year or two. Um, and, and I say that kind of in retrospect, right? So it's kind of one of those things. The, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The best yeah. time to start your garden was, you know, last year. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you let that you let the wood chips sit there and break down and break down. All you're doing is creating compost for yourself, right? Yeah. So that's a, that's a whole other thing. People are throwing away so much stuff, so much food that could be utilized as a compost garden, right? So take a couple pallets, take a a, a, a Walmart thirty gallon tub, and create a, a tumbler so you can start throwing your scraps in there, your kitchen scraps. And, and you can create this tumble system. There's DIY, you know, videos all over the place. You can use a, a, a big drum barrel and you can create a compost bin, right? And if you don't have that, again, three-sided pallets and just start throwing all your kitchen scraps there, right? Anything that's organic. And you just turn that every couple of days, maybe once a week, you know, make, make a day on the calendar and, and you just turn it and you keep adding things on there. And for us, we, we don't necessarily need to do the compost because we have really good soil because of the, of the wood chips. So we feed that to our chickens. So not only are we saving money on chicken feed, we're feeding our chickens this good, nutritious, uh, you know, leftover heads of lettuce. Um, you know, before we started getting into the uh, financial system that we're in now where we're, we're saving a lot more money, but also spending a lot less money, <clears throat> there would be times where we would clear out our fridge and I mean, just the wasteful nature of, of us, uh, lazy Americans. Right. So the back of the fridge has a 25% of your food. The average American wastes 25% of their food every month. So in the back of the fridge is this whole head of romaine lettuce or just, you know, iceberg lettuce that went to waste. 
uh, and you just throw it in the trash. Now, obviously, we can feed that to our chickens and, and they're getting, you know, that source of food that we no longer have to, you know, go out and buy. So and this chickens is a- are way better fertilizer than whatever banana peels that you're going to throw in your compost ever. Oh, are. for sure. Like, and they're great. Chicken litter is the best. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They are the best farmhand that you can hire because they eat very cheap and they, you know, you you can just feed them tables. We are supported by Aerial Digital. Aerial Digital is a full service digital marketing agency that specializes in custom designed websites for small to medium sized businesses. Whether you need a simple one page bootstrap website or you're ready to start selling your products online with an e-commerce website, Aerial Digital is equipped to help your business. Go to aerialdigitalmarketing.com slash new normal. That's A-R-I-E-L digitalmarketing.com slash new normal and save 20% on your custom website today. So these are the domino effects that people aren't thinking about, right? So how you can not only feed yourself, but feed the animals that you potentially could be taking care of. Having a system, having an ecosystem that you can support yourself, support the animals that you're taking care of um, it, for the long run, right? And so this is, this is not stuff that's going to just magically start working tomorrow if you go out and get, you know, a couple chickens. Um, one of the things that I noticed very early on back in, I guess now February, March, uh, kind of going into March, where in a lot of these Facebook groups, a lot of the beg by barter Facebook groups, people were like, where can I get chickens? Where can I get chickens? We're looking for layers, right? And it, it's just the, I guess, there's ignorance behind that, but obviously a little bit of naive, naivete that, hey, we're just going to go get chickens and we'll have eggs tomorrow, right? Like they don't understand, yeah. unfortunately. You're looking, you're, you're four to six months out from getting your first egg and they're going to be weird. Your first couple eggs are going to be really <laughs> Yeah, you get the little fairy eggs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if you're interested in, in the documentary that we were just talking about, that's backtoedenfilm.com. Um, I think we talked about Forks Over Knives uh, is another one in Food Inc. Food um, Inc., yeah. Th- I mean, that was my really- first look at the absurdity of our food industry. And it's worse now. That was made like in 2008 or 2009, I think. And, and it's just, it's, you're, we're 12 years out and our food industry is almost completely unregulated at this point and just disgusting, like gross. It's, it's, you know, and the average person is like, well, my cows, and I sell them to this slaughterhouse, and my cows are great. Your cows are great until they end up on somebody's feedlot, and they become disgusting and covered in feces, and then they rapid slaughter them and spread feces and E. coli and whatever else all over your meat. Then to fix that problem, they're going to sanitize it in, like, chloramine or whatever weird, you know, uh, ammonia-based sanitizer they spray all over them. This is a weird process. Like, our food... The, what it takes to feed this many people and how we do it in such a, a mechanized and uh, just faceless and just kind of, I don't know. It's weird. I'm not, you know, like I'm not one of those PETA advocates who's like, oh, animal cruelty and whatever, but man, some of the stuff that happens is pretty, it's pretty bad. And I just know how my family used to farm back in the day and what happens now. This is a totally bastardized system and, you know, you're like local slaughterhouses or you're a local farmer with a butchering area and his barn used to feed whole swaths of towns, small townships all across the country. Now everybody's produce and everybody's livestock goes to like these centralized areas and 
mass slaughter. It's just it's a trip. You should everybody should watch it. Right, and, and we're not obviously we're not saying that the the agriculture business as a whole is is a terrible thing, right? Like you've got to feed the world. We we understand right. that. I understand that. And and this is coming off the heels of an almost you know two to three year fight against the slaughterhouse trying to open up in in our local. Uh, jurisdiction in my small little town in, in East Texas, right? So like, I understand, I, I've been through the argument of, well, you got to feed people. I get that, right? And there's just, there's a responsible way to do that. And, you know, that that's- The problem that's, is, is that we are trying to feed the whole world. Like this country, for whatever reason, has taken it upon ourselves. It is our burden to produce the food for everyone. And then also just- so many NGOs and charity organizations that once we produce this food, just like here, you can have it. I wonder if that's going to continue. Uh, if that continues, that type of behavior where there's where people are maybe going hungry in this country in the next couple months, and these NGOs are buying up huge swaths of the food because they're allowed to do so, and then they ship it to places, you know, outside the country. I think there's going to be some serious backlash against that, but. I mean, you know, that's like, very similar to the situation with Egypt sending us PPE when they're in the midst yeah, of a pandemic. Insane. We, we received aid from a third world country, and we should be really proud of the way we've handled this. So what are some of the other things that you feel that would be beneficial for someone to start learning right now? You know, we've talked about homesteading and, and learning how to garden and some of the, the benefits of gardening. You should learn how to build a cold smokehouse and how to cure meats, uh, how, how to salt and cure and air dry meats. Um, how Make YouTube your friend, basically. Yeah, you need to go to YouTube High and uh, you know go down the black it. hole. Yeah, I, I would. Um, and you know, like the website, like Eat the Weeds, uh, something like that. You know, yeah, edible weeds. Gain. Yeah, there's a ton of actually. There's so many things that just grow in your yard in Texas that are completely edible that you just like poison. You know, I, and, and I get it like under any other circumstance, I would round up the crap out of my yard probably and get rid of all the ugly stuff that, you know, is, is an eyesore or whatever, but now you might not want to do that. Well, and at the same time, like for our sheep, we'll let them, we'll turn them out on, on our acreage and they'll just de decimate. They, decimate wheat. <laughs> they take care of everything. Like right now they're, they're in a relatively big paddock that was overgrown for the, goats that we had in there, the male bucks that we had in there, the male goats, and they weren't taking care of the grass because obviously most goats won't eat grass and, and little weeds are more brush eaters. So we switched out the sheep's, uh, the sheep's pen with the buck pen and they have taken care of that. Like within a few days, it's already down like a manicured lawn and it's almost getting to the point where we need to take them out of there so that they can start moving on to uh, another paddock to take care of the grass. But I mean, these are the type of things that we're not teaching people, right? So there's no other than FFA, which is more of a rural uh, program anyways. There's just- And that's very like big agra anyway. That, the, the whole, the whole uh, idea behind FFA now is moved past like homesteading and homestead farming to like how to be productive in large scale production farming, which is good. We have to have large scale production farming. Right. Uh, but they're not teaching those, those basic skills anymore. Oh, something that most people don't know. If you, if you don't already know, if you're listening to the show, you probably do know that. But if you don't know this, um, you're going to want to make sure you're getting good seeds. You know, you, you're, you can't, you're not going to be able to plant like, Oh, I got this from the grocery store. I'm just going to take its seeds and plant it. That's probably GMO. 
Uh, I'm not like one of these people who are GMOs of the devil, you know, like we have to feed the world. I get that. We have to, we have to at least feed ourselves and that really aids in that. Um, but they're sterile. Uh, they're sterile on purpose. Um, they'll also potentially sterilize similar crops that are around them if they cross pollinate. So you plant that you may or may not get a productive X plant, you know, whatever it is out of that seed. Um, you probably won't. If it is productive, you can guarantee if you try to replant that seed, it's not going to grow either. So, Right. So, I mean, looking at heirloom seeds is, is something that we have. My wife has a huge binder of just all the seeds that we've collected over the last few years of doing this. And, and that's, I mean, that's just what it takes, right? Like, so if yeah. you're not already in this, if you're not already taking the steps to learn and understand how much work goes into not only just feeding yourself, but what 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 it takes to feed the nation, right? And this is where this food shortage is coming from: is the fact that we've disrupted, and I say we as as a collective, as our government, as as the virus itself, right? So we have shut down a system, an an industrial system that is feeding us, and and it's created this domino effect that isn't just about the virus anymore. Right. It, it stopped being about the virus probably three or four weeks ago. Yeah. And we have states like Texas who are slowly starting to open up, slowly starting to introduce people back into the public. To be quite honest with you, not much has changed for me that that I and that's anecdotal. Right. So not much has changed for me when I go into town. I just I don't see the effects, and obviously we live in a very small rural community, so it's not a major metro, but I'm just not seeing the huge effects that some of these cities are seeing. What I am seeing is the food shortage because we are rural, so it takes that much longer for us to get the shipments in, right? So they're going to feed Houston and they're going to feed Dallas before they feed, you know, Podunk Town in, in West Texas or, or Far East Texas. What you should be concerned about, too, is the Walmart there in your town is actually a distribution hub for Walmart in that area. So they actually, unlike most Walmarts that operate strictly on the Kanban system, they have a storehouse in the back of the Walmart. You know, there's, there's large storage capacity for, you know, there's multiples basically of everything, or should be ideally multiples of everything on the shelf in that store, and there's not right now. Yeah, I remember having a, I'm not prone to them, but I remember having a little bit of an anxiety and panic attack while I was at Walmart, probably the first week of this happening. And when when all the stories about the toilet paper were first hitting, right? So this is God, February now, right? How much time has passed? But I remember going down the aisles, kind of laughing at the toilet paper situation, but then I started going to the beans and rice section, the ramen section, the other canned goods sections. And I started seeing how empty the shelves were already getting. And this is right, right when the WHO was like, this is a pandemic. You know, we got to be aware of it. Um, I just remember having a little bit of a panic attack in the middle of an aisle. Like it wasn't Hollywood panic attack, you know, sitting in a, in a fetal position, curling back and forth. But I remember getting very antsy and I wanted to leave the store right away. You know, I, I composed myself really quickly and, and I turned to my wife and I was like, I don't want to be here right now. Like this is, this isn't what they prepared us for. Right. They, they didn't talk about that. It would be so quick. 
that it would happen this quickly. It was just supposed to be a flu. It was just supposed to be this uh, this seasonal thing that no, no big deal, right? So like the big thing in media right now, at least on the right side, is showing all the clips of the Democratic leader saying, this is no big deal. Come to Chinatown. Um, everybody should be going to Mardi Gras. Come to the beaches. Everything's good. Um, and then at the same time, you're sitting in, in a grocery store and you're seeing shelves starting to get empty. And I've never been the type of person that's like, hoard everything right now but i i live under the mentality of two is one one is none right so yeah. I, I i will take an extra can of, of beans because we're going to need it right so i don't have to come back to the store in case i forgot it but that mentality starts exponentially growing where they're like oh jim just grabbed three rolls of toilet paper i should grab five well it's, bob it's just grabbed theory. five yeah so they, yeah. they just started growing and growing and growing. It's prisoner's dilemma. Tom Green had a really good, interesting theory on uh, JRE, and he was talking about why he thought the toilet paper shortage happened, and it's because toilet paper is so big and bulky that when you take two or three packages at a time, it makes it look very bare very quickly. So you have three yeah. or four families that take three or four packages each, it makes this, the shelves look really bare really quickly. So then, again, the game theory it just starts exponentially growing from there. And like I said in the last episode and probably the episode before that, why do we still have a shortage on toilet paper at this point? Yeah, that's really strange because we produce I, – I, I still don't have an answer on that. Maybe somebody in your neck of the woods who's listening in, you know, in the lumber industry, maybe they can give us uh, some insight. Maybe somebody if there's – if there's anybody at the the plant, you know, the paper plant, you know, I, I I'm I'm just uh, kind of shocked because we produce pretty much like 95 percent of the toilet paper that we it's only one in brand. Country. That's the thing that's killing me. There's only one brand sitting on the shelf, and it's like an end cap at our at oh, our. Oh, it's Walmart. the John Wayne toilet paper. No, not even that. It's like Angel Soft, so it's at least a good oh, wow. brand. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's at least a comfortable brand. We're not we're not sitting here with uh, sandpaper, but at the same time, yeah. it's like, where's everybody else? Where's Charmin? Why why aren't yeah. we getting any Charmin in? I'm, like, I don't get it. I don't even have any answers on that. Uh, I mean, yeah, man, I got I got kind of made fun of because I, I I knew about you know this back. Uh, in the end of December. And I, I pretty much immediately, like once the end of December and the beginning of January rolled out, I was like, Oh, this is a pandemic. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking like a moron getting food in Sam's and stuff. And then what's awesome. I, I haven't had to go to the grocery store. So and I, I still won't, I probably won't need to. So the, you know, the jokes on everybody else. I, and I, I, I shouldn't say that. That's 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 not right. But but uh, you know, the, it's okay. The, we only have a few listeners. Yeah. The, so, but you know, I you can't just food's not one of those things that we can just like the Defense Production Act. If if there was a, an executive order signed tomorrow that said produce more food now, yeah. So that's that's not going to make me. And and and. You know, even if that was the case and you had willing farmers, you have lag time on that. I mean, I, I am actually pretty scared that people are going to starve to death. I mean, we do actually have people that are, uh, you know, food insecure in this country all over the nation. And people can say, oh, that's some liberal talking point or something. Whatever it is, it's true. 
you know, you can look at the numbers on that. People, people have food insecurities and, you know, this isn't going to make that any better. Um, <clears throat> it cracked me up, man. I got to give a shout out to the Frito-Lay Corporation because, uh, you see all of this, uh, like, meaningless virtue signaling and like political gestures we're like we're going to change our logo temporarily or we're going to donate to this weird cause or whatever and frito-lay and you know they were like yeah we're not going to do all this meaningless junk like change our logo and invite you to this political function or donate money overseas or whatever we're donating x million dollars right now to food insecure and homeless children in this country. And I was like, yeah, that's awesome. That's, that's the type of charity and the type of actions American companies should be taking right now. And, and they did. So I, I got to give them a shout out. And I think they're a Texas company. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's going to be an interesting, right? So I think everybody's been is using the two weeks kind of model, right? So the next two weeks, the next two weeks. And, and I posted this out there as a, as a, Kind of That's because people only have a two-week memory. I mean, from a po- political standpoint, if you make two-week promises, you can embed it. Then in two weeks, people forget your promises, and the only people that that won't are going to be fanatics, and no one looks anyway. So, right, and and I made this this observation that right. So there's the fight, flight, or freeze, and right now the fight mentality is we got to open up, we got to get back to work, we got to stimulate the economy, we're going to fight for this right. For, for everybody to go back to work. The flight mentality is we got to stay home. Everybody's sick. Nobody go out. Everything should be locked down. We welcome the draconian overlords. <laughs> and then the freeze mentality is I'm just going to hold on and wait for everybody else and see what they're doing, right? And that's that two-week window situation. And what, what that spells out to me is a stalemate. Like these next two weeks is a huge stalemate. Yeah, so this goes back to, you know, what we talked about in episode one and where I said, like, you're fed two sides, you know, always. You're kind of fed two different talking points, left wing, right wing. And it's bogus. It's a bogus talking point. We shouldn't be be talking about any of these, whether we should go back to work or whether we should be, you know, stuck at home. Like, this should have never happened. Where is the demand? Like, this should not have happened. Why did you let this happen? Why did you trust China? Why did you trust the WHO? Why weren't we shut down in December? If, you know, the CIA knew about this in the fall and they were sharing it with NATO and the IDF, why weren't you sharing this with the American people? Why weren't we told to prepare? Like, these talking points are just getting you to argue with each other when your biggest problem right now actually is what the government did and allowed to happen. I'm not pointing the finger at the president. I'm not blaming him and his administration necessarily, though there's some culpability there. Ultimately, he's the executive. But everyone failed us, everyone in our, in our government, every single person. And you got two, you know, two groups of people. One, stay at home, accept the bag, you know, thank you for the bag of money. And the other one is like, this is, you know, I don't want the bag. I want to go to work. I don't want to be dependent on the government. I want to be dependent on my big box job. It's like, why is dependence on one faceless bureaucracy better than dependence on another faceless bureaucracy? Where's the signs? Where's the protest saying I was already unemployed, underemployed, you brought in H1Bs to replace me at my job. The bag ain't enough. 
Like, why did you allow this to happen in the first place? Like, th there should be massive demands for accountability. Instead, we're being we're being fed talking points that'll ultimately provide our leaders an out and ensure that they're never held accountable. Right. The, fi for what the false happened. dialectic. Yeah, it's a false dialectic. And I don't know, fight, flight, freeze, what, what, what the best one is, what the two-week two outlook is. I don't know because I haven't been told enough. You know, the, you know, NATO can know whatever the Defense Department and the CIA know. The IDF can know that, but I can't know that. But at the same time, they get to lock their people into mountain bunkers indefinitely. You know, obviously, they're taking it pretty serious. I don't get to know that. You don't get to know that. All I get to know is that I got 1200 bucks and my food might run out. And it was because we did a lot of business with a country full of communists who actually don't like us very much, you know, great answers. Very cool. I'm so happy. You know, like now I don't know what to do. And I'm, I'm provided, you know, this, these baby steps about this reopening. Does the reopening actually fix anything? The biggest problem we're about to have now is how do you feed your kids? Mm -hmm opening nail salons and car dealerships and stuff like that. I'm in the auto industry. I don't want to see the car dealerships, you know, close or, or, or stay or, or, or shutter or whatever. I made a good living off of that. I don't want that. But at the same time, that's not my biggest concern right now. It seems like the biggest concern right now that I have is the government just allowed big agra, these faceless globalist multinationals to destroy a whole bunch of food and potentially take food off my table. You know, the government's provided us a bag, you know, in the future, maybe the government should think about instead of allowing all this food to be destroyed, distributing it appropriately. I don't know. People say, oh, government's not the answer. Private business is the answer. Free, free market, what, whatever. You know, the free market just destroyed all your livestock. That, that's what it just did. And the government could have stopped it. Like we had regulations in place at one time for a reason. It's because we've been down this road before. History is literally repeating itself right now. And that's where... It, it gets really frustrating, right? Because we, we do live in this two-week window. We do live in this social media bombardment of information that is, is keeping us at odds with each other. And if we just took a few hours and studied history and understood that these things happen in cycles, and if we just look back and see how things were handled back then, we could potentially learn from our mistakes and grow from them and come out of them. So our guest in, a, in our last episode was talking about how millionaires are made in recessions and how we could be taking advantage of this, not, not in a negative sense of taking advantage of people, but taking advantage of the situation to set yourself up, to invest in yourself, to invest in your land, to invest in your property, to make that leap if you haven't, right? So my homestead journey, I, I did a 30-day, almost, almost 45-day vlog of what our homestead journey was like back in 2016 from closing on the house to moving into the house to working on the house and then doing some homesteading projects. Those are things that if you have had it in the back of your mind, again, rainbows and, and, and uh, unicorn situation, if we come out of this in the next three months and everything's back to quote unquote normal, if you've had it in the back of your mind to start looking at some property to start looking at farming a little bit more in your backyard, right? Like we should be turning our front lawns and our backyards into gardens right now. That's what should be happening. Stop caring yeah. about having the best lawn in the worst neighborhood or even the best lawn in the best neighborhood. You could be feeding yourself. You could be feeding your family. Kale grows 
everywhere. You could be feeding <laughs> your neighbors, right? And so that's a that's a goal. That's been a goal for my family is to have an abundance of the vegetables that we grow, an abundance of the milk that we're able to produce from our goats so that we can share with our neighbors, with our family surrounding us. And if if everyone, and I know that's that's a pipe dream, but if more people had those same aspirations, right? And that's not to have some sort of false altruistic point of view. It's just doing the right thing, taking care of your neighbor, taking care of your family, uh, taking care of yourself and, and having that goal so that we don't have to be dependent on a communist nation who supplies almost 90% of all the box stores, all of our technology, um, all of the labor for all of these things, we wouldn't have to be dependent on all of these foreign entities to take care of us. And now... And they don't like us. Like, go read the <laughs> Chinese version of, or the Chinese equivalent of Reddit and see what they're saying about you right now. Capitalist, American, imperialist pig gave us a virus. We should bomb them. We should nuke them. If you don't believe me, go look. They don't like you. Their party feeds them information about you that's false all the time to amp them up against you so they don't point the fingers at the party. Like these people genuinely, genuinely don't like us. And it's all just fake, you know, smiles and, you know, slights that our, our leaders get from their leaders it's all pageantry and it's a dog and pony show just to keep the, the wheels turning for these, for big box or whatever, you know, and there's, there's not necessarily anything wrong with big box or what Sam Walton envisioned, but most of what Sam Walton sold when he owned Walmart was American made products. And that just doesn't exist anymore. Like I, this, this is so weird that a system like this, and, and if you think it's just the flu, fine. The flu just basically toppled a whole system the most complex economic system the world has ever seen basically just got drugged to its knees by the flu. And we talked about that in episode two with Corona weapon or Corona hoax in the fact that, you know, I, I love the fact that <laughs> we were talking about it first and now Joe Rogan's talking about it, but are we, are we headed to war with China? Be it fourth generational or a hot war. Are we headed that way? You know, we've got Australia or, or China who's threatening Australia to stop their propaganda that this was a Chinese-made virus, right? So now we're, we're getting these puffed-up chests of diplomat versus diplomat, country versus country, this saber-rattling. We've been, we've been going to war with China intellectually for quite some time. At what point does that, that boil over? At what point does... Does America just say we've had enough? Um, oh, who was it? Tim Pool was talking about the fact that either we're going to have a world leader in, in either situation, in either country, that's going to say, I'm not going to be the one that goes down in history as the one that let my country down and presses the button, right? Or hopefully we have a leader that says, I'll take one for the team, we need to fix things. We need to mend fences. We need to get things back on track. And they don't push the button. My fear is, my, my rationale, given history, that there's going to be a point, and you've got stuff like Kim Jong-un potentially dead, and the rising power of, of his sister, Taiwan. Who's a psycho? <laughs> <laughs> Taiwan is still a, a 
up in the air, right? So China's circling Taiwan constantly. I, I think you're I think you're talking about Chinese overseas territory. Oh yes, I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. That's according according to <laughs> according to, to our according Chinese to the overlords. Who? The, the 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 Chinese island that may be known by Taiwan as some, uh, to some the artist yeah. formerly known as China yeah the island formerly known as China but right so I mean you can't even have the director of the WHO in an interview even acknowledge that Taiwan exists without hanging up on the reporter and then when they get back yeah. on the phone he's <laughs> yes. just like China's doing a great job so I mean we have an extension of China through the WHO. That is essentially a, a propaganda wing, a health propaganda wing for China right now, right? They, if you can't name your patient, can you effectively treat them? I mean, <laughs> I had to mute myself for that cough. <laughs> and, and I don't know, where, where do we go from here, right? So we've got a really exciting guest coming up in our uh, normal Monday show, uh, Mr. Jim Simpson. He is a political commentator, an author, a best uh, best friend of the show right now, who, who's going to come on and talk to us about what's happening in the, in the geopolitical spectrum of, of China and, and everything that goes. So if you're interested in that, I would encourage you to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting platform, whether that's iTunes, Google, uh, Spotify. You can go to newnormalpod.com. All of the show episodes are going to be there. You can subscribe to the newsletter where we'll be alerting you about new shows, upcoming guests. We've got a lineup of guests coming up. Please go back and check episodes one, two, and three. We've had some really insightful conversations. Um, again, not to sound, I guess, <laughs> pedantic about it. Um, we're, we're tooting our own horn. Um, but we, we literally I, I, have been ahead of everyone else. And, and you're welcome, Internet. You're welcome, Joe. Um, but the, the fact is that I, I see these headlines and, you know, like the food shortage stuff, right? Like we were talking about that in episode two and three, the food shortage. And now it's everywhere, the food shortage. And that's not to say that we're, we're psychics or we're, we have some, you know, tap on the, on the geopolitical spectrum that nobody else does. It's to say that you can recognize patterns. And if you can recognize patterns, you can see what the next two weeks have in store. And we were talking about this in the, in the last episode that this is now a three year game. Like we need to yeah. start thinking about the next three years, right? And people are so tied up in the next three days, potentially the next three weeks that they're not even looking. They might at be three. having another Tiger King show like in three weeks. Oh, of course. Three months. Re- I don't remember. They got to release another episode of Tiger King. That's that's definitely going to keep everyone. They have, yeah. They have to. I mean, what do you do about the tiger situation? Like we, nobody's talking about it's, the tiger situation. <laughs> the Chinese would like to make erectile dysfunction pills out of the tiger situation. I think is what they would like to do. The tiger. I would like to see a Chinese version of Tiger King. I wonder what that would look like. I think it would just be like people going into India and they would eat them and like causing geopolitical strife. Oh, definitely <laughs> penis first. <laughs> <laughs> the show no, just went I, somewhere new. <laughs> no, no. But, I mean, seriously, look, look that up. People should look that up. That's that's real. I didn't just make that up. Again, this episode uh, was sponsored like, by Guinness, and that's why. <laughs> <laughs> a bloody mary <laughs> guinness and a bloody mary uh no but like 
seriously, uh, to talk again about the food situation, I mean, there was actually, there's been a food problem in this country and worldwide for a while now. I mean, we've had crop failure all across this country. Uh, you had African swine fever burn its way through China, uh, and they had an H5N1, I think, was the strain of bird flu, um, an outbreak in China at the onset of the, the coronavirus pandemic. And they had to slaughter millions and millions of chickens. And I'm, I bet just to prevent another outbreak of something terribly pathogenic, they, they, they just destroyed more than they should have. Uh, I don't really know what the figures are, but they, they had a pork shortage. They have a chicken shortage now, you know, and then all of a sudden they buy out Smithfield. If you think that's an accident, I don't know what to tell you, you know, that was not an accident. That was all intentional and it could be that they're able to move food out of this country faster than we could stop it. You know, I'm not saying they will or that that necessarily will happen, but they own the company, basically. You know, what's to stop that from occurring? They have a problem. They've basically just ensured that if they have a problem like that again in China, it's not a Chinese problem. It's not a Chinese problem if they have African swine fever or bird flu. It's an American problem, you know. That's what they just ensured. So start growing your garden if you haven't already. Watch Back to Eden film. <laughs> get get on board with taking care of yourself, taking care of your health, taking care of your family, and and being able to provide. Um, you know, you can't yell fire in, in a crowded place, but at the same time, you have to understand that there is a fire coming potentially, and we should be aware of where the exits are. And when you when you have friends who are you know, I, I'm very fortunate at this point that we have what little audience we do have and what little influence we, we have in, in being able to, you know, share our ideas through social media that people now send us and send, send you and I private messages and give us some of this information, right? And, and things are slowly making their way out, um, call it a leak or not. But you have this information that stores are not putting a limit on what people can buy in terms of meat. And I guarantee you, if you go to the store tomorrow, you're going to see a bunch of carts full of meat, chicken, beef, brisket. My wife and I were talking about, you know, maybe we should go in the morning and, and grab brisket, right? So you can grind a brisket and have a ton of ground meat, right? You don't just smoke it up and eat it in one day. You actually use it and prepare it. But there's going to be, there's going to be a wake-up call very soon that we've been wasteful with our food, right? So you were saying 25% of, of our groceries go just into the trash. Yeah. There's going to be a wake-up They're problem. not even being composted. You're just done in the landfill. That's infuriating too, right? Like there's so many people out there that could <laughs> yeah. be benefiting from all that food. Um, but, the, but that wake-up call, that what we've been calling the hard reset, you know, I don't know if we've coined that or whatever, but the hard reset is coming and... People need to be prepared for that. And the way you get prepared is by investing in yourself, in your knowledge, not sitting on the couch, uh, writing it out by hoping and wishing. You can pray. I certainly would advocate for prayer. But you have to take action. You can't just sit there. Do something, right? So in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, one of the things that they teach you is do something. Just do something, whatever it is, get yourself out of that situation. And 
I hope and I think the people who listen to this show are of like mind, but those who are just now kind of waking up to this reality, this new normal, need to understand that the new normal, while again, we've, we've been saying that we're trying to pivot the mentality of the new normal from a negative context to a positive context, that the new normal for you is to learn about germination, learn about seeds, learn about the, the weather cycle, learn about what grows in your region, learn about what regions are, right? Like there's regions that where you can grow certain things, learn about the, the weather patterns and, and get back into the swing of what people a hundred years ago, and, and it's only taken that long for us to be that far disconnected, that far removed from our food source. So, I mean, if oh, you- Oh, it's, it's happened within, I mean, in my family, the, the disconnection from the land was pretty recent. I mean, within a generation, basically. Um, and then some people in the United States, it's really recent. And, and you're talking about it, every baby boomer, you know, if you grew up in rural Southland, grew up on a farm, probably. Like almost every one of them. And they never really learned the skills from their parents. I know my great grandparents, they could probably stick anything in the ground and get it to grow. Knew all of these different tricks. My, my dad's dad, you know, he could tell you anything about how to smoke, cure and preserve and just whatever. I mean, I, he, all the things that he knew. And I mean, that, that knowledge, I mean, more or less just didn't get passed on. A lot of it was just lost, but there are resources. Like we talked about back to basics, uh, country wisdom and know how, um, the one of my favorite YouTube channels, living, stuff like that. One of my favorite YouTube channels. Um, it's a good personal friend of mine. Zach Bauer runs um, an American homestead, and they've been doing it for, gosh, probably six six plus years. And it's a great resource. That Weedem and Reap is another great YouTube channel if you're if you're looking for resources to learn. And the that channel, they're in like Las Vegas or something, and they're on an acre of land. And uh, my wife is telling me Arizona, um, my producer. Still terrible. <laughs> Still right. terrible. But they're they're on an acre of land, and they've got goats. They've got lamb that they're raising they've got chickens they've got a hydro uh, they've got a pond that they just built and this is all just on an acre right and so someone who's listening to this who lives in the suburbs invest in raised bed gardens you know go out there grab some one by sixes slap a box together grab a box of screws slap a box together grab some soil grab some compost grab some wood chips if you can um and start learning start failing the, the best teacher out there is failure and you're going to learn quickly. And, and it's, it's unfortunate that it's in a situation where you're being forced to learn. So like that frustration of failure obviously is, is going to kind of exasperate some of that anxiety, but I mean, it is what it is. Start getting with your neighbors, uh, start growing what they're not growing and learn how to trade off, right? Like, I think the barter system is going to be a really big thing uh, coming up, um, you know, with, with work, with food, you know, I'll, I'll give you a dozen eggs if you can do this thing, you know, I'll give you some milk for this particular, you know, trade, you know, can you come work on my vehicle? Because the mechanic shops are all shut down because, you know, they, they've all got COVID or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, barter is going to be huge in the future. I mean, it, it, it already is in most rural places. Yeah. Um, our, our 
monetary policy and that's a whole other topic for another show. But, uh, you know, there is something that you know how to do that your neighbor doesn't. There is something that your particular soil subset can do for you that can't, can't do for your neighbor because they're in a different type of soil table or something like that. There is something about your geography that provides you an edge. You just seen it yet. Oh, another thing you can, you can have livestock in your own backyard. A lot of people forget you can get rabbits. Rabbits yeah, can literally chicken. live. Off, yeah. Backyard chickens, uh, backyard rabbits. Now you can starve on rabbits. You're still going to have to have a fat source because rabbits really don't pr- provide a very good fat source. So you can, you can have rabbit starvation, but you can still get some fresh meat. And if you've got, you know, just some lard or something you can add to fried rabbit, you know, that's a pretty decent fat source, but they'll just graze on your grass. Chickens, believe it or not, if you have a tractor in your backyard and can move it around, you're not going to have to feed them as much as you think. You can get a few hundred pounds of feed on it, on oh, yeah. hand, you know, within the next couple months. That'll, that'll go a long way, you know, and you'll get plenty of eggs out of that. And you might even have a few chicken to eat. Yeah. And, and the way we do our, our chicken is we have a specific flock for our layers. So we have a layer coop and those are the ones that we get all, all of our eggs from. And most of the breeds that we have for, for the layers are dual purpose. So meaning that, Obviously, they're going to lay eggs, but when they come to breeds, we have Australorps. We have I'll tell, I'll tell my breeds too. Yeah, I have some Bard Rock, some Australorps, um, Comet Star. They go by a variety of different names, like Red Star, Comet Star, something like that. I've but never grown those. They are very productive and they lay like goose eggs. It's ridiculous how big these eggs really? are. Really? But they, they are constant. They're almost kind of like the production reds where they're just always, always, always producing. Um, and when we first Do got into... Do you have into, any uh, Jersey Giants? No. When we first got into chickens... <laughs> yeah, facts. No, I'm serious. Because I'll, 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 I'll trade... I'll tra- well, I can bring them over, but I mean, I can trade you some Jersey Giants for some of those Comet Stars. Yeah, we want to get a couple more too. Like tractor supply is not getting in them. All the hatcheries that we usually order from, they're like way backlogged into like August... I gave my incubator to somebody. Otherwise, I would like offer to let you use it. We have we have an incubator that um, we're currently. I don't know how many do we have in there, like thirty something like that. We we incubate for our friends as well. So, you know, people okay. who who don't have chickens and, and are looking. I mean, th- at this point, they're just barnyard mixes. Um, I'll trade you some Jersey Giants for some of those if you want the Giants. They're good. They're good meat birds, Jersey Giants. Sweet. But yeah, all of my my chickens are dual purpose. I got Bard Rocks, Reds, Orpingtons. Uh, I have some fruit fruit chickens too because people <laughs> just think that they're they're like more organic or better or cooler because they are like blue eggs or whatever. Blue eggs and the pretty people. It's so ridiculous. It's like this is actually a crappy bird, and I actually wish I didn't have to raise it for you people. Um, not a fan of these little things. The olive eggers. Um, yeah, the olive eggers. It's just like, come on, people. I guess what's cool about them is they are kind of broody. So I mm-hmm. don't have an incubator because they're they're kind of broody. Well, bantams are really broody too. So they're, they're they are. Bantams. I just don't have any bantams. Yeah, I should have gotten a couple, but I, I didn't because I got rid of all my chickens years ago, and I had some like silkies. Believe it or not, I had two reds and two orpingtons that were super broody, and like every couple of months, I don't know, every two or three months, my my wife will tell me, yeah, like every couple of every few months they would turn out like 80 chicks, these little, these little hens. They would sit on these eggs underneath this feed trough. And it was kind of a trip, you know, because those are – I wish I still had those chickens because it's so uncommon to have reds or orpingtons be broody like that. Um, and my wife says I need to explain what the chicken tractor is because most people don't know what it is. 
people think it's a tractor. This is just a thing <laughs> that you can move chickens around and it's mobile. It's like a little yeah. mobile chicken coop. I'm building some right now. Joel Salatin is kind of like the pioneer behind the, the chicken tractors. Uh, oh, definitely. <clears throat> those are, those are well, great. I don't know if he's the pioneer so much as he just like re he repised it. He like rediscovered it. Cause that was pretty popular, you know, uh, I don't know. Yeah, that was like a World War II effort, right? Too, they had the A-frames, and you can move them around. Um, you know, go yeah, exactly. Backyard. One yeah. of the other things that I we think do, he just brought it back. Yeah, one of the other things that we do with our chickens, you know, we're getting to the fact that they're dual purpose. But once a year, sometimes twice a year, just depending on our on our workload, we'll order a huge batch of Cornish, so the traditional broiler chickens, the ones that grow in about eight Delicious. weeks. So, I mean, these are the juiciest, plumpiest, and they're grass-fed. I mean, we give them some, some feed, obviously, but they're on grass, and we move them in tractors, or we'll put a poultry netting around them. And they're essentially free-range chickens, like truly free-range, not the industrial model of free-range right. where they get a four- One square four. foot. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. if that. Um, so we, we have our dual-purpose layers, and then we have our meat birds, and we'll get anywhere between 75 to 100 for, for the whole year. So if you're eating chicken once a week, right? So that's a, at least a year's worth of meat that you can put in the freezer. And those are just skills that you're going to have to learn if you're going to go this route, right? So like the very first time I processed the chicken was the very first time I processed the chicken. And I had to walk through the steps very slowly. And now two, three years into it, I'm just able to zip through it with a knife and, and just, you know, get it done and throw them in. It's like, it's not even fun anymore. It's a chore, like just to get it done. Um, but just I have an arrangement with one of my buddies. I go hunt like a few times a year up at his place to go hunt deer. And then all I have to do is slaughter his chickens. And so I, I get like a boiling, I get like a propane tank and a big boil pot. And like, it's a great skill to have. Tank. I mean, again, for bartering, it's we, super easy too. we had yeah. a couple of friends that didn't want to do it just from, from a, I guess, ethical standpoint, they didn't want to butcher some turkeys or some chickens. So we did it for them and we got to keep some. And the same thing with, with um, we, had a, we had a neighbor who had a cow that had a prolapsed uterus, and so it had to be put down. That's meat right there. And so in exchange for helping him do that, we got a bunch of meat. We've gone through it at this point, but we got a bunch of meat. Um, so those are just skills that you're either going to have to learn or learn how to barter with someone who knows how to do those things. Um, yeah, absolutely. We've raised, we've raised uh, dual purpose. Home butchering. That's a book that people need to get. Oh, Sorry, yes. man. No, no, you're good. There's a, there's a lag. I keep doing that to you. Um, the dual purpose chickens, the meat birds, so Cornish. We did the whole homesteading cliche Freedom Ranger experiment where we had a couple Cornish and then a couple Freedom Rangers. Honestly, we, we went through the Freedom Ranger phase where we're like, we're going to go, you know, we don't want the Frankenbirds. We want the whole, you know, GMO-free, blah, 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 um, the, the Frankenbird situation. And the Freedom Rangers were just terrible. I'm, I'm going to tell you guys, if you're going to get into meat birds, invest in good quality, good quality um, Cornish rock that will grow in about eight to 10 weeks. The... Freedom Rangers took anywhere between 14 to 16 weeks to grow out, and they were about half the size, half the weight of the Cornish Rock. And it's a big thing in, in the homesteading YouTube community, you know, get the Freedom Rangers, get the Freedom Rangers. If you and they're, they're not really non-GMO. They're not really GMO. I mean, Cornish aren't really GMO. They're, no, they just think they are. Eugenically selected to be the best meat bird. Exactly. You know, I mean, the Cornish... 
I think it was King Henry VIII, like literally in the 1500s, uh, uh, you know, or, or bef- yeah, bef- way before that. Um, he um, is the guy that um, started the selective breeding process in England. And each bird was selected based on specific traits. And they just kept selecting for the best and the best and the best and the best in that category. And the Cornish is like genetically selected. It's not, you know, it's not a modified bird or anything like that. This bird has been selected for 500 years or more, you know, to be the absolute best bird you can get. And I mean, just as natural as any other bird you're going to get. And it's going to produce for your family much better than any other stuff like don't like i have eaten a buff orpington and a, a rhode island red or something in the past but like there you don't want to do that you know those are pot yeah, birds you're exactly. not gonna fry that up for your family <laughs> yeah we uh so in addition to the dual purpose layers and the meat meat chicken birds we also invested in um the broad-breasted uh turkeys as well and we went the homestead route again just kind of experimenting what's going to work for us um and we got the heritage narragansett turkeys and it those just take forever they just take forever to to grow out and again we're talking about if you want my food we want to have them where they can run around like but if you just want meat and you want meat quickly to produce and and have you need to go the more yeah, no, unquote, traditional you. ag model where you're getting the fast growers. But yeah, the Narragansett are you, great. Did you, did you get that from our mutual friend that has turkeys? No, no, we ordered those. Okay. Yeah. So but, I, I got turkeys from them once and they were, they were awesome birds. They're great. Like they're super friendly. They're, they're, I mean, we would whistle at them and they would respond. I mean, it was just a fun. Yeah, I know they're, they're fun birds. <laughs> they really are. Uh, let's see. Quail is another uh, bird poultry that oh, we've raised in the past. So good. Pain in my existence. They're delicious, so but God, <laughs> pain to raise. So we got the Coternics, and they weren't terrible. I mean, we had them in a hutch, so we kept them relatively confined, and they were easy. But, I mean, the, the process. I got the yeah, I've seen those. Um, but the Coternics were really good. I think the A&M, I, are Coternics and A&M the same thing? Yeah, they are, so, yeah. I mean, they're just super fast growing. They, they're they pretty broody. They If you let them grow out and, and you know, get get some eggs from them. Um, but there, there's so many there's so many things that you can do with all of these different animals, right? So you don't just process it for the meat. You can take the bones and, and boil them down and get some bone broth. And, you know, you, you then do that enough times where the bones become soft enough, you can actually put them in a blender and that can be a bully mix for your dogs. So let's assume you have some dogs on your property. You can feed your dogs this ground up bone mixture, bone and meat mixture. And now your dogs have something to eat, right? So we're not only thinking about ourselves when we're talking about a food shortage, this is going to trickle down to, you know, house cats and and house dogs, you know, And the maybe freezers of America could be packed with pets. <laughs> oh God! No, we're, we're not China yet. <laughs> no. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, these are the things that people just don't think about, right? The the cause and effect, and the domino effect that this is going to have, right? So, like back in January, we were concerned about getting a coughing fit that could put us in the hospital with a bad pneumonia, and that's 
all the way now to April, end of April, going into May, where we've shut down the economy, shut down our cities, shut down our way of life to the point where now we're talking about food shortages. And what happens with food shortages? Well, now you're talking about a famine and people not being able to eat or bread lines. And we have pretty much uh, big box and bread lines And you can still right get the now. bad cough. Exactly. <laughs> like it's, it hasn't gone anywhere. And now like, we're back. <laughs> yeah. Everybody I know in the medical field is, you know, I know somebody pretty important actually in the medical field uh, that runs a very large hospital in, the, in Houston uh, or helps run one anyway. And they're very worried about a, a second wave, you know, and what that looks like. Cause they're, they're, you're not really immune to this thing. Like they're telling people you have the antibodies and from, from what I'm gathering from different people I'm talking to. Yeah. The antibodies really, are meaningless. It doesn't really matter. Actually. It just means that you could be really, really, really sick next time. Like right, it's almost like shingles. Under. Yeah. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's bad. So like, you know, food, you, you know, get the, get the, the fancy cold when you're hungry, that's going to be pretty miserable. So tell me something that you're reading to get you prepared for, for the uh, upcoming uh, post food shortage. <laughs> what are you reading? Um, as far as like uh, survival or. Um, yeah. yeah. For fun or for survival. Man, honestly, I have, uh, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say it, Cause I have a pretty grim outlook on how I, that'll be a conversation for another day of, of, <laughs> of how bad I actually think it could get. Um, but honestly, uh, I, I, I'm not reading anything because like, I, I kind of lived this way for a long time, you know, and I already kind of have these skills and I know a lot, I listened to my dad, my dad's dad, although he didn't do any of this stuff as he got older. Um, he actually knew a tremendous amount of, of, of about surviving and living off the land. Cause he was so poor. He grew up in Newton, Texas. If you don't know where that is, you can look it up. It is a, it is a very impoverished area. It's a beautiful area, though. And, um, it, it, you know, he lived, you know, in a very bad time in a very poor area and knew things that people hadn't done to survive since, you know, the, the 18th century. And um, he taught me a lot about that stuff. He's actually probably one of the first people um, that that got me interested in, in homesteading and growing uh meat and, and vegetables and, you know, growing meat and raising livestock, um, and curing and smoking things. Like I didn't ever build a smoke, room, but he told me how they were built because he was a carpenter and he knew how they were constructed. Um, you know, so I would say actually without going to get a book first, if you have an old timer that's still alive around you, and they lived on the land and they, they grew up in this way at one time, they're a larger wealth of knowledge than a library of survival books. Cause you know, you're kind of up against the wall as far yeah. as, you know, uh, time is concerned. You don't have the time to pour over a whole bunch of books. That person can give you a crash course in what it takes, um, overnight. And you could be a huge benefit to them because they're not able to do these things for themselves anymore. Right. One thing I'd like to say if you do get chickens, everybody needs to, while you can still get it, get some mineral oil so you can turn your eggs into shelf stable eggs for, you know, I think it's like up to a year. Right. If people do that, you know, you're, if you, if you refrigerate an egg, believe it or not, you've just put a timer on it. 
pretty quick timer, but you put mineral oil and throw it in the pantry. In like in Europe, most people just keep eggs in the pantry. Yeah, none of our eggs go and in the it, fridge. You, yeah, they all sit on the shelf. No, you, why would you want to waste eggs by putting them in the fridge? I mean, you know, I mean, that's once you start thinking like this, and that's that's like you. Just well, most people don't even know that the eggs that are sitting in the grocery store are almost three weeks old, anyways. Yeah, and they're washed. You know, don't wash your eggs. Don't you wash get your, your eggs. eggs in your in your coop is clean. Do not wash your eggs. Um, just if it's got a little poop or something on it, pick the poop off. You know, rub the mineral oil on there. It'll be fine. Um, but you wash them, you just put a timer on it. You put it in the fridge, you just put a timer on it. You put mineral oil on it and you just, you know, you set an expiration date a year from that day. Pretty much, maybe not. You know, I've heard yeah. they can last even longer. And do yeah. the water test. Do the water test on your eggs. Float test. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, canning is going to be another kind of skill set that people need to start exploring and, and understanding the, and the, the preservation. Yeah, yeah, preserving all this food. You can grow all the food I, you want, but if you can't preserve it, yeah, no, exactly. I would I would be interested to know if there is um if there's a readily available what's up? Just time. Oh, if there's like red salt in the food or in the uh, stores at this point. Cool. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the new normal. We hope you've gotten something out of this that it's been beneficial to you that um, we can help edify your experience and and be at least one resource that you can turn to and hopefully get some new skills or learn about uh, a new way of life that maybe you hadn't considered if this is your first time joining us we want to thank you for your time we encourage you to download the podcast at the newnormalpod.com if you get it on Spotify or iTunes or Google, uh, we would encourage you guys to start downloading it there. Um, if you have any feedback, uh, those of you who joined us for the Facebook Live, we appreciate your comments. If you have any feedback of how we can improve the show, any topics that you'd like to hear, we'd love to, uh, we'd love to hear from you guys. Uh, any closing thoughts, Quentin? No, if you, uh, well, yes, one, sorry. <laughs> I, I just immediately started with the, no, that's the bloody, it's the bloody Mary talking, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, like I said, if you have an old person in your life that lived in, you know, a rural area off the land at one point in, in their life and they still have a, a sound mind, pick their brain. It would be a good time to do that. If this has uh, been a benefit to you, please, again, consider subscribing. And until then, stay safe. And welcome to the new normal.